you flip the calendar, I think people kind of flip to, hey, let's go risk on. And, you know, we see very strong equity markets and, and the bond markets have been more buoyant. Uh, you know, risk assets are kind of back in, in charge. So it's been a really interesting kind of transition as we've headed into the new year. Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, where we talk about the latest developments in the ETF industry on a weekly basis. I'm Managing Editor Heather Bell, and I'm joined by my longtime colleague, Senior ETF Analyst, Samit Roy. Hey, Samit. Hey, Heather. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? All recovered from the conference? Yeah, starting to recover. Flew in late last night. How was the conference for you? It was pretty good. It was pretty good. Got to see a lot of people, which I don't usually get to do since I'm working from a basement in Denver. Um, so that was great. <laughs> Today, we're speaking with Sal Bruno, the Chief Investment Officer of Index IQ. Hi, Sal. Hi, Heather. Hi, Sumi. Great to be with you guys today. And it's great to have you join us. Just to start off, Sal, how do you think investors should be positioning themselves in the current market environment, which is kind of a rather weird environment, frankly? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. I think so far, 2023, as we sit here in very early February, has been kind of the mirror image of 2022. I mean, in 2022, you know, basically you had extremely aggressive Fed policy, and it really took most assets down um, negative for the year. You know, we saw sort of unprecedented negative returns for the 60-40 stock bond portfolio, and really across almost almost every asset class, we saw negative returns. It was a real risk-off year. You know, there were a couple of, of asset classes that showed some decent performance. The U.S. dollar over the course of the full year was actually pretty good. Um, not surprising, given that we saw you know, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, um, you know, as aggressively as they did. Uh, energy stocks were also probably a bright spot for the full year, um, but that was kind of it. Um, and so, you know, this year has been kind of the complete reverse. As soon as we flip the calendar, I think people kind of flip to, hey, let's go risk on. And you know, we see very strong equity markets, and and the bond markets have been more buoyant. Uh, you know, risk assets are kind of back in in charge. So it's been a really interesting kind of transition as we've headed into the new year. And of course, the question is, have the markets gotten a little bit ahead of themselves, um, given, you know, equity markets are up, you know, upper uh, mid digits uh, as we speak. Um, and so, you know, the question is, you know, is where where do clients go now? Um, you know, we think that equities probably are still a, a decent place to be, but there may be opportunities beyond kind of the headline uh, top market cap weighted names where you may find some better opportunities. And we could talk a little bit about some of the strategies that we're employing to try to unearth some of those opportunities. Uh, we think also alternatives have a place in the portfolio. You know, Alt had a really interesting um, place last year. You look at a strategy like a merger arbitrage, you know, they were generally slightly positive to slightly negative if you look at the range of different merger arbitrage managers. But in the context of a negative 18% return for the equity markets and you know, minus you know, twelve to fourteen percent for the bond market, depending upon what index you're using. Um, you know, really fulfill their, uh, I think, obligation or or mandate to try to be a diversified in both stocks and bonds. So, you know, we think that those are kind of evergreen when you look at different alt strategies. And you know, we think in this environment where equities have kind of come out of the gates very strongly, and the bond market as well, that you know, maybe those are, are something that deserve some some additional attention. 
Yeah. Well, I took a look at the flows for index IQ and the thing that stood out to me is according to our data, um, ESGB, your core ESG bond ETF took in the most um, assets uh, during the past 12 month period. And I was wondering, can you kind of like talk maybe in more generalities about what's going on with the flows into your or out of your uh, funds in the index IQ lineup? Yeah, I think, you know, we have seen some flows. Um, ESGB is one that has had some positive flows. Um, and I think the other place where we've seen it is in our municipal bond suite of ETFs. Um, both the, all, all of those are actively managed. All of our fixed income ETFs are actively managed. So we, we're fortunate to be owned by New York Life. Um, and New York Life Investment Management is the group that we sit within. And as part of NILIM, as we call it, we have uh, other sister boutiques that are also part of NILIM, include Mackay Shields, who's a very well-known fixed income manager. And we've been able to tap into their expertise, whether it be on the core bond side and the, and the global fixed income team or on the municipal bond side and their muni team. Uh, to to bring out what we think are very competitive product and, and offerings, again, actively managed. And we think that makes a lot of sense, particularly in the muni space where, you know, the breadth of the ETF, of the, of the municipal bonds is so wide that we think that having uh, professionals who are kind of looking at the stuff all the time gives a nice advantage um, to be able to find the, where the opportunities exist within the municipal bond space. But to your question, Heather, on, on ESGB, you know, that's one that's that's managed out of the global fixed income team. Um, and we think that it really is a compelling offering. Um, it's a core plus bond ETF actively managed. And it comes at it with a tilt of looking towards um, kind of an ESG, just in the name. Um, and it's kind of interesting how you apply ESG to bonds versus stocks. It's a little bit different because for bonds, they they so many of them have kind of specific use cases when companies go to market of when they're trying to raise capital. And so you can really have the managers can really get out there and talk to uh, to the companies issuing those bonds. Say, well, what is kind of the purpose of this bond? And any each bond issuance may have a different purpose, and some may be more well suited towards um, you know activities that would be more conducive towards the ESG label. So I think it's kind of an interesting way of looking at um, ESG through the through the bond lens relative to the stock lens. Yeah, it's definitely a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, Sal, really interesting to see the success of that ESG bond fund. But I want to turn to another one of your ETFs. Uh, it might even be your largest ETF, IQ Hedge Multi-Strategy Tracker ETF, QAI. It's got over $600 million in assets. When a lot of people think about hedge funds, they think, you know, high fees and maybe stellar performance from a few standout funds, but relatively middling performance from the rest of the group. QAI is obviously a different animal. Can you tell us how it compares to actual hedge funds and who is this ETF for? Yeah, so when you look at what QAI is trying to do, it's trying to replicate kind of different, the, the broad hedge fund index. And, you know, when we look at back to 2022, it was a very challenging year for, um, for a number of hedge funds. As we mentioned, there were a lot of uh, most asset classes were negative for the year. And so unless you had a, uh, some very large short positions, it was kind of difficult to add positive returns. That being said, with, the, with hedge funds are trying to do generally um, is to is to provide kind of some sort of a buffer against equity markets and fixed income markets. And I think the problem with 2022 from an investor standpoint was 
you know, many people say, well, when equity markets go down, I'll just own bonds and that'll kind of be the ballast of my portfolio. And that really didn't work last year when with interest rates rising at the at the clip that they did. Um, and so I think people look towards hedge funds to try to fill that goal. And that would happen last year. If you look at the broad hedge fund indices, they were down probably 8% or so, um, which from an absolute standpoint is not particularly attractive. But from a, a if you look at, was it a better option for hedging some of the equity market volatility than perhaps a fixed income solution was? I think that pretty clear that it was, but you know, again, bonds were down about 14%. So I think there was some positive attributes in, an, in a negative total return environment for hedge funds. And, and QAI last year basically tracked its few basis points. But again, I think being down kind of 8% while on a on a relative basis was, uh, and from what it was trying to do was was positive. Um, I think it's difficult to attract a whole lot of capital in that type of an environment. And, and another alternative ETF you guys have, Sal, which is pretty popular, is your merger arbitrage ETF, ticker symbol MNA, great ticker. Thank uh, you. It's also, yeah, it, it's also one of your largest ETFs. And this one's interesting because it's not very volatile, right? And you would expect that given uh, the fund strategy. I also looked at the returns over the last decade, and they've been pretty solid with gains similar to investment grade bonds over that period. So what have been the risk return characteristics for this type of strategy long term? And do you expect that to continue going forward? Yes, I think you're right. Long term, we've been very pleased with the re risk return profile of the M&A ETF. I think, you know, like every strategy it goes through its periods of times where it does a little bit better and sometimes maybe does a little bit worse. Um, but overall, we've been very pleased with it as a diversifier. Again, I think last year was a good point, uh, case in point where equities and, and bonds were down so significantly and you know, merger ARB was flattish to slightly down a little bit, um, again, depending on which strategy you're looking at. Um, so we think that that is a real positive. You know, our outlook is actually fairly positive. Some of the trends we've seen in merger ARB over the last you know couple of years or so is, you know, you look at deal flow and deal flow really took off. We saw obviously a very, uh, almost come to a complete halt at the peak of the COVID crisis when things first started shutting down in March and April of 2020. And, you know, kind of deals just kind of stopped almost completely. And there was a, a dearth of deals. And not surprisingly, the world was shutting down and bankers and lawyers were not able to travel and, um, you know, make, make uh, facilitate uh, transactions. But once the, once the world started opening up even just a little bit or people adjusted to the remote world, um, we started to see deal flow come back online. And in fact, we saw a huge surge as, as liquidity uh, pulsed through the market. Um, companies were flush uh, with cash and you know, they became, uh, the stock market kind of took off and, and companies were able to use their stock as currency to buy other companies. And so we saw a huge in, uh, increase in deal flow in 2020, 2021. Um, 2022, we started to see it trickle off a little bit. And I think, you know, while it's down from a dollar standpoint, as well as from a number of deals standpoint, I think we're back to kind of where we were pre-COVID, which is that it's not a mania, but there's still ample deal and ample activity to run the strategy. I think when we're looking at kind of the, the expected return for merger ARB, I think there are the, probably the most important thing is the completion rate. Uh, the two things are the the premium you get when the deals close and the expected completion rate. Um, premiums have been going up. Uh, part of that is a, is a reaction to higher interest rates. And so when we see higher interest rates, typically you see uh, deal spreads widen out a little bit. 
Um, and the key really is the the expected completion rate. And I think, you know, while it has still remained fairly strong, I think we're in an environment, a regulatory environment, not only in the United States, but in Europe as well, where there's a lot of scrutiny on these deals. And, you know, the, the, the amount of scrutiny kind of varies by uh, administration, the political bias of, uh, of, of different administrations. Right now, we're in one where a lot of deals are gathering a lot of scrutiny, attracting a lot of scrutiny again here as well as in Europe. And um, I think that that is, has caused uh, some of these these spreads to go a little bit wider um, and have, have kind of muted the merger arb returns a little bit. But as you said, some, uh, some you know, it's not a very volatile strategy. Every once in a while, you get a deal that that breaks, and that can cause some some volatility in the strategy. But generally speaking, it's a it's a low vol strategy. And so, you know, we think that despite the fact that it is a uh, a more difficult regulatory environment, we are still seeing deals close, and we think that the risk return profile should still be fairly attractive. What I've noticed when I look at your lineup is, I guess, because of the Nylum uh, ownership of Index IQ, you have all these um, like funds that you have launched with, say, Winslow, Shaken, um, and Mackay, and Candrium. I was wondering, could you talk to me about the pipeline and how that kind of works to uh, roll out uh, products and how you make those decisions? Yeah, so the, you know, the, Index IQ is kind of, we, we fill two roles here at Nylum. Um, number one, we are the ETF platform and issuer for, for New York Life and, and Nylum. Um, and so we have, you know, a, a, an opportunity to create our own strategies. And that's kind of our second um, function that we fill here is we are an investment boutique. We do have our own investment strategies. And we talked about QAI and M&A, our two oldest and largest ETFs. Those come from the Index IQ um, platform. But we are somewhat of an open architecture uh, ETF issuer as well, in the sense that we will license indices from third parties, and so we have relationships with other index providers. And you know, you mentioned that the Chaken that comes from Nasdaq. We also have an index uh, or fund that's based on a currency hedge international equity that we license from FTSE Russell. So we do have relationships with other index providers, and then we also have relationships uh, with other. Uh, asset managers that have associations or affiliations with New York Life. So some are um, owned by New York Life. So Mackay Shields is one. Candrium is another one. They are a large asset manager over in Europe. Very big, very well-known entity when it comes especially to ESG investing over in Europe. And so we've launched a number of strategies in partnership with them. And, you know, we'll also go out and work with, um, you know, other third parties. So, for example, we've launched uh, or repositioned one of our real estate ETFs in partnership with CBRE. So we, we created a mega trends um, with, with the help from CBRE and identifying those mega trends that are an index consultant. Um, and so, you know, again, we, we use third party um, cap, uh, intellectual capital in, in that case with CBRE, um, whether it be affiliated, whether it's Mackay Shields or Candrium uh, or, or Winslow's another one, you know, they sub-advise uh, mainstay mutual funds, mainstay being the mutual fund brand for, for New York Life Investments. Um, and so we were able to capitalize on that, that existing relationship with Winslow and launch two actively managed non-transparent ETFs, the first ones we've launched. And we did that in the uh, middle of 2022. Yeah, I remember that. Um, so what's what's your perspective on non uh i'm sorry semi-transparent or non-transparent active I, I feel like the trend hasn't fully caught hold but is it something that has like a future 
ahead of it, maybe when there's, you know, when foreign securities are allowed in those types of products or? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, well, first, I think Active is really gaining um, a foothold in the ETF world. And, you know, you look at the flows uh, from last year and Active had a pretty good year for ETFs, almost about $86 billion in new capital coming in for Active ETFs industry-wide. Um, so we think that active and that's still relatively small. I mean, passive brought in over 500 billion. So, you know, it's it's a little less than 20 percent of, of what we saw on the passive side, but significantly larger than it was in previous years. So I think active in general is getting some uh, some momentum. Active non-transparent is a sub portion of that. That has been a slower adoption, to be sure. Um, you know, if you look at if you look at the top 20 launches for 2022, 17, this is industry-wide, 17 of those were active, um, but none of those were non-transparent active. So again, we're seeing some momentum building in the active space, um, but I think it takes time. I think people, you know, it's, it was starting to see when, first, when active first came out, you know, we, we, a lot of people were saying the same thing, you know, does this have a future? Will we see any flows to active? Um, we're starting to see the flows coming in. I think, you know, time will tell, but I think we, we are somewhat optimistic that the active non-transparent as people get more comfortable with active ETFs, and we see the flows go there. I think the next iteration will be the active non-transparent start picking up a little steam or momentum there. Um, but again, those are those are a little bit of a different animal, and and investors have to get comfortable with the that the arbitrage mechanism, which is key to pricing for ETFs, that that arbitrage mechanism will work in the non-transparent world. And you know, I think industry participants are somewhat comfortable. We have to get the the investing public to become com comfortable with that. Absolutely. Um... I was also wondering, I've been really looking at ETF, uh, mutual fund to ETF conversions. And I was wondering if there's any plans for that at Index IQ. Like, I mean, you could bring like mutual funds from your parent company to the market and stuff like that. Is that in the cards ahead or, you know, do, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I think it's a really interesting topic and we're starting to see, uh, you know, the first few have been going over the last year or so at the industry conference. I had an opportunity to catch up with a, uh, a, a an investment lawyer um, who said he's he's really busy with uh, many companies that are starting to line up and filing to do these conversions. So I think we are going to see more and more of them. Um, with one of the one interesting stat is if you look at uh, mutual fund to ETF conversions, forty percent of those funds are actually in outflows. So while companies are lining up to do them. It's not 100% clear that investors are fully embracing them yet, um, but it, I think it's a trend that will continue. You know, as to our uh, whether we will do that here, that's something obviously we are well aware of in the industry, um, and something that we are um, actively discussing. Uh, you know, how we would respond from a competitive standpoint to to that trend that we're seeing in the industry, but um, we cannot announce any any plans at this point. Of course, <laughs> um, yeah. What I what I had observed from looking at uh, ETF or mutual fund to ETF conversions as they stand currently now, it tends to be if it's a very successful fund um, and you convert it, it's going to see more flows from and more interest from investors in general, um, like speaking in very general terms. But if mm -hmm. you're, it's not getting interest from mutual fund investors, it's probably also not going to get interest from uh, ETF investors for the most part. Like with that cannabis fund that uh, launched and then closed, I think, within like a year. Well, I think that makes sense. I mean, look, I, I think that, you know, I certainly have the opinion. I think 
everybody in the ETF industry probably shares the same opinion that the ETF is a superior wrapper in many cases, in most cases, relative to, to mutual funds for a host of reasons, not the least of which would be the tax efficiency. Um, but that doesn't mean that taking a fund that's not particularly, um, that doesn't have a whole lot of investor interest and just kind of changing the wrapper is going to all of a sudden lead to more interest. I, I think I agree with you on that point. So, um, you know, it, just changing the wrapper doesn't solve, you know, the problems of a, a fund that doesn't have any interest. But you're right. I think for those that already have interest, I think the ETF brings some significant benefits relative to mutual funds. And, you know, as, as an ETF participant, I think that's a, a widely held belief. Yeah, of course. <laughs> We're not biased. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's true, though. I mean, it's empirically unarguable, I think. Um, I was just wondering, where is Index IQ's focus right now, like when we're at what looks like it's going to be some kind of turning point in the markets? Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about a little bit, you know, not surprising given the uh, the greater uh, flows and product uh, number of products coming out and success that we've seen on the active side. That's been a big portion of our focus, and we launched a significant number of products in 2022. Uh, many of them in partnership with uh, with Mackay Shields, again, on the fixed income side, whether it be Muni or, um, you know, core fixed income. We just came out with a, uh, a strategy late last year on actively managed high income, which is largely a high yield type uh, bond strategy. So, you know, we're looking to continue to find areas where we can tap into the expertise, whether it be in Mackay Shields or even New York Life Investors, uh, for that matter, you know, the folks who run uh, some of the uh, the pool of assets that sit behind the New York Life Insurance, uh, you know, they have significant investment capabilities on the fixed income side. So having the ability to tap some of their expertise and launch uh, ETFs is is something that we're interested in in pursuing as well. And then you know we, we did launch the two active non transparent on the equity side, and we're going to see if there are continued to be other opportunities on the equity side um, in the active world. Um, you know. We, we are continuing to focus and add on our ESG efforts. We have a U.S. large cap and international equity, two different ETFs. And then to kind of round out that suite a little, we did launch a uh, mid-cap version at the end of last year, and those are all done in with uh, in uh, coordination with Candrium. I mentioned them as one of our sister boutiques is very well known over in Europe for their ESG capabilities. So, you know, we're going to continue to focus on ESG um, thematics, as it were, and then uh, actively manage strategies, whether it be on the fixed income side or on the uh, equity side where, where possible. Sal, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really great. We're gonna have to leave it there. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. It totally was. Um, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.